of losing money in the stock market roller coaster? Frustrated with the government taxing you into oblivion? Worried about inflation? How do you prepare for so many financial uncertainties? Welcome to the show that will help you develop your game plan. The Financial Quarterback with Josh Jelinski. Josh is a noted financial advisor and president of the Jelinski Advisory Group. And he's here to answer your questions. Call into the show at 800-321-0710. 800-321-0710. Now let's kick off your financial future. Here's Josh Jelinski. Hi, everybody. This is Josh Jelinski with David Ranson. David is a legend in the world of economics. And David, for people who are not familiar with your work, describe your background. Okay, it starts with being English. I came over to the U.S. to graduate school, the Chicago Business School, and stayed. I didn't never went back to England except to revisit my relatives. I've lived here ever since all over the place, Washington, D.C. for some time. I was in the federal government when Nixon was president and uh, worked for George Shultz and then William Simon. And since then, I've been with uh, basically with one company, H.C. Wainwright & Co. was its original name, and we now call ourselves H.C.W.E. So that's many decades of, in the same job as chief economist for Wainwright. Describe your work with Milton Friedman. Well, I was a graduate student uh, when he was still teaching, and he was a stern teacher until you got to know him, and then he was a very gentle guy. And I did get to know him, and I really ended up loving the guy. He was a really nice person. I took several courses from him, uh, tried to persuade him to be on my PhD committee, but he declined because he was in the economics department and I was in the business school. Maybe he had other reasons, <laughs> but I uh, got to know him pretty well uh, all the way nearly to the end of his life and uh, tried to persuade him in the, in the last years of his life that the money supply wasn't doing the job that he had always argued that it would. So I'm not really a monetarist in the uh, normal Friedmanite sense. So for people who don't know what that means, what, what does that mean? That means uh, the quantity of money doesn't govern the inflation rate or the growth rate of the economy in the way that a lot of monetarists still argue even today. The relationship between money and the economy is quite more complicated than that. And money, if, I, if you want me to go on, I can go on all afternoon on this topic. Yeah, yeah, let's. So, so monetarism is basically the belief, okay, if you have more money in circulation, dollars will be worth less. That We've, we've heard yes. that before. If you have less money in circulation, dollars will be worth more. What do you believe? And why do you think that that's wrong? There are two sides to any market. In the case of money, one side, of course, is the suppliers of money, which include the banking system and the Federal Reserve. On the other side of the money market is the demand, the demand for money, the decisions that individuals like you and me and businesses make about how much money they want to hold. And I believe that at least in the short run, if not longer, the amount of money in circulation depends on how much money we want to hold, not on how much money has been supplied to us by the authorities. By the way, I want to mention this is known as the Mundelian. I don't want to take credit for this. This is the Mundelian view, which is equally valid as the Friedmanite view. The Friedman and Mundell just were the heads of two different schools of thought within monetarism. Why do you think your view is correct? 
Ah, because, well, I have been looking at that quite recently. Uh, there's been a forecast not so long ago in the Wall Street Journal editorial page that since the M2 money supply has been declining in a way that it never declined in the past, that's a threat to the economy and the economy is in serious trouble. My answer to that is that individuals who hold cash balances today have lots of reasons to reduce how much cash they want to hold. One of those reasons is inflation. The more inflation takes place, the less cash you want to hold because cash is an idle asset and you're losing. The longer you hold the cash, the less it's worth. But the other reason, more relevant right now, is that growth causes uh, individuals to hold less cash too, because growth symbolizes markets doing well, stocks particularly. So you don't want to have a large amount of cash balances when you, this, uh, the, the economy is doing well and the stock market is doing well. You want to put your cash to work. So this is the demand side of the economy. So the, the higher the growth rate in the short run, the higher the growth rate, the less cash balance you want to hold. So there's an inverse correlation, uh, which I think is the cause of this decline in M2 that a number of people are very concerned about. So we've had you on in the past talking about inflation, deflation. You were right when few others were. Frankly, a few years ago, three years ago, you called for persistent inflation. What is your take right now? What do you think will happen in the next 12 months on the inflation number? Well, what's complicated the inflation picture is energy. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, and now, again, another big scare in the Middle East, which is very energy sensitive. The thing that's happened is that uncertainty about the future of energy, and particularly from the point of view of the people who ultimately own all this oil, that's an investment for them. And there's more and more uncertainty about what will happen to their wealth as situations develop. So the more uncertain you are about the future of the oil industry, the less oil is worth. So that it's depressed the price of oil. And this depression in the price of oil has improved the inflation picture, causing everybody to think erroneously that the Fed has succeeded in reducing inflation. The Fed has nothing to do with it whatsoever. It's all an energy phenomenon. And the oil price is still way down there in around $72 a barrel. But I think the natural price of oil, if the, all of these war scares were to go away, would be around 130 And if that happens, what happens to inflation? Shoots back up it's again. It's a huge boost to the inflation rate. The inflation rate goes back to where it was before it started to alleviate and, and beyond. In fact. So you're in the camp that inflation is persistent for how long? Until the government wakes up and follows different policies, basically fiscal policy, as long as the government throws money at the economy, the inflation rate is going to go up. And I don't know how long it's going to take for the government to realize it can't afford to throw money at the economy in this way. All the politics are pushing the government to throw more money instead of less for a long, long time. Have you looked at the or uh, interacted with Lacey Hunt? and his view on disinflation. And what, what do you think about that? I guess you disagree with it, but. Yeah, I know Lacey Hunt uh, from many years ago, but I have not talked to him recently. So I couldn't tell you how his views might be different from mine. I think they are different. 
I'm not looking at the inflation situation anymore as a purely macro phenomenon. Energy is such an important commodity in the world economy, uh, far more important than most people think it is, in fact, that it explains nearly all of the things that have been happening to the inflation rate recently. We don't need any macro arguments to explain it. But it does take some explaining as to why the oil price has done exactly what it's done and why it's so volatile. And uh, I can explain both to some extent, but the, the, the explanations are never quite deep enough. Well, let's explain it. Well, it's all about uncertainty. Let's look at the stock market as an analogy. Stocks are an investment, but they're a risky investment. So let's suppose there's a jump in uncertainty. Well, we had one when the COVID broke. The stock market goes down, but one of the things that goes up and explains why the market went down is the VIX index. I think people are quite familiar with the VIX index. It's an index of uncertainty, or more precisely, it's implied volatility, the, the uncertainty about the future return on stocks. So if VIX is up, that means more uncertainty. That means stocks are not worth what they were before. But if they're more uncertain, they're worth less. The, the, the more uncertain you are, the less you value what you're looking at. So the stock market goes down. And indeed, if you look at the stock market from day to day, month to month, year to year, there's a huge inverse correlation between what happens to the VIX index and what happens to the stock market, the S&P. Well, now transfer to oil. Oil is not like stocks at all, but oil is an investment. Somebody has to own all the oil in the world. Not only the oil above ground, but even the oil that hasn't been released from the ground yet. It's all owned by somebody. So as uncertainty about the future of the oil industry increases, which it does when the Russians invade Ukraine or Hamas incurs into Israel, all of those things make the future of oil and energy in general more uncertain. And this uncertainty makes the value of an investment in the oil industry worth less. So that pulls oil prices down. This is counterintuitive to a lot of people, but it happened both times, both uh, in March, uh, I think it was, in uh, 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine. There was a temporary increase in the price of oil, but a longer-term major downturn. And the same thing happened uh, again after October the 7th, a minor increase in the price of oil, followed by a major decline. And that's what happens to risky assets when they become more uncertain. Why are they falling? Because governments... Uncertainty. No, but is there, is there any truth to, okay, Biden uh, going into an election year, you know, you had Russia, Ukraine, you had people complaining that gas was too high in the U.S., so then they opened up the reserves or anything like that. I'm not an oil expert, but just... No, I'm not either. No, there are dozens of explanations along the lines of strategic petroleum reserve, Saudi government policy, Russian export policy, Chinese import policy, Indian import policy, all sorts of variables. You can watch them all the time, and lots of oil analysts do, but I, I can't see how you could systematically get any kind of theory out of it, any kind of predictive ability. You're not even saying why oil is low. Oil is just low, and that is stifling the rate of inflation. What, what evidence do you have for that? Why is oil the one reason inflation is cooled? Just a formula? Well, there's a couple of questions there. I think I mentioned the VIX index. Yep. The corresponding index for oil is called OVX, 
you can actually buy it and sell it. It's a, it's a financial instrument. It's called the implied volatility of the oil market. And it's well known that it, it reflects the uncertainty about future oil prices or the uncertainty about the return on holding an oil-related investment. So that's why oil prices are depressed, because the uncertainty is much higher than it was. Just as we see the stock market depressed when VIX is much higher than usual. The normal level of VIX is 15 or so. It can get to a high of 30 or 40 or 50. It has even gotten as high as 60 or 70, I think, on occasion. Those are extreme examples of uncertainty that occur when there's a major geopolitical event, such as shooting down an American plane in the Middle East or something like that. So oil's low, inflation's low. Where do you get your argument that inflation is persistent? And I know you've used this gold ratio and things like that in the past. I don't know if that tells us anything. Yes, well, the, the ratio between oil and gold over the long haul is very, very stable. It's hardly any different today than it was 100 years ago, in spite of all the enormous changes that have taken place in the past 100 years in both the industry for oil and the gold market. All of that, it's a matter of the demand for these investments. People feel about these investments, their safety or their lack of safety, in the same way today as they did 100 years ago. And the result is that the ratio in price between oil and gold is much the same, very nearly the same as it was 100 years ago. And it's been the same all the way through with these fluctuations, which are very confusing, and we're going through a fluctuation at the moment. But the fluctuations are always temporary. So now what I was referring to is more of inflation. Ah. All of this is about the short run and the tendency for the short run to iron out. But in the long run, we see large increases in not in a stable, consistent way, but large jumps from time to time in both the price of oil and the price of gold. And of course, in the prices of all the other commodities in the system. But the biggest jump that ever took place was after the Bretton Woods system broke down. And we went from a quasi gold standard in the old days to a floating standard without it, not really a standard at all, but the value of a dollar depends on what we think the Fed is going to do, which is a very poor basis for a currency. When will the Fed wake up and say, hey, you know what, we haven't, you know, now, now they have a victory lap because inflation's cooling and they're talking about rate cuts and all these things. You believe that they are wrong and misguided, correct? And why is that? In praise of the Fed, I would say they've been very cautious. And I wouldn't call it a victory lap. It's people who kind of follow the Fed and uh, believe in the Fed. They're the ones who are doing the victory lap. The Fed is very cautious and very reluctant to reduce interest rates. And it possibly never will reduce interest rates. So that is still a possibility. It all depends on how things work out. So I have to say that in favor of the Fed, they're not being stupid. But they are missing this important insight. There are two insights. One is that in the end, inflation depends on the depreciation of the dollar relative to gold. We've proved that over and over again. And the lapse of Bretton Woods was one of the major proofs. Other countries have proved it even more times on a larger scale. 
And then secondly, in the short run, we have the energy industry, which plays a much bigger role in the setting of the price level than anything the Fed is doing. And so with inflation, what other proofs do you have for the fact that you think inflation will be persistent? And when do they wake up and say, hey, we were wrong, we have to keep hiking rates? The basis of it is a very strong correlation over time with a bit of a lag in it between the price of gold and the price level. Consumer price index or the producer price index, there are lots of ways to measure that. As long as the gold price goes up in a very consistent way, which it is doing, the inflation rate will be consistent as well. Now, to complicate things, we can't use the spot price of gold to measure this because the spot price of gold is influenced by crises like COVID. That was one of the biggest crises recently. You need to look at gold 20 years out in the forward markets to be able to see what's happening to the depreciation of the dollar. But it's the depreciation of the dollar that is consistent over time, although it comes in jerks and cycles and waves, but it's still very consistent over time throughout nearly the whole world, not just in the US. And this gives you persistent inflation. But since Reagan, we had a break. Uh, Reagan broke the cycle in the 1980s. He campaigned uh, to bring back the gold standard, and he followed very counter-liberal fiscal policies. And this encouraged people to have more confidence in the future of the dollar, and that stabilized the inflation rate. And the influence of Reagan has uh, remained in the markets almost to the present time. But I think in 2020, it broke. And so the future price of gold, you have this ratio that you look at that's the futures market and you divide it by the strips. Remind me of that again. Yes. Well, strips are just a way to estimate what the price 20 years out or 30 years out would be if we had an active gold market out there. The gold market isn't active, of course, for 30-year delivery. Who, who wants that? In finance, you can always create a price that for a hypothetical transaction, and that's what it would be. If you were buying and selling gold, and you're not required to deliver as seller to the demander until 20 years from now, uh, there's still a price you agree on today. That price is the forward price, or you might call it a futures price. That is the price that I think measures the extent to which the dollar has depreciated today. The markets are setting it for all the way out to the future, 20, 30 years, even beyond. What do I look at? I, I think in the past you've said, look at the, is it the S&P U.S. Treasury Principal Strips Index or the Bank of America Merrill Lynch Long Treasury yeah. Principal Strips Index? The one I use is the Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Uh, it was originally the Merrill Lynch database. Their figures for Treasury Strips, that would be a bond that pays a balloon payment 30 years from now or 20 years from now, but pays no coupons in between. So it's called a zero, zero coupon bond. Those prices are on the books. Merrill Lynch provides them so on the So what is your price today? Oh, I, well, I can't remember the numerical price. It's, uh, it's in, expressed in six digits. Uh, okay. I, I'd have to look it up. But I'm interested in what's actually not what the level of the price is. What's important is the percentage change in the price. And I can tell you something about that. And what, what is that saying? Well, it's been rising 
at a fairly hefty rate all last year, 2023. Okay. Uh, and it stabilized just in the last couple of months since about November. Now, the magnitude of it, if you uh, measure it relative to when it was last stable back in 2020, about the time of the last presidential election, inflation was stable. And then suddenly in the new year, 2021, it took off. If you measure it relative to that, it's up 160%. How much is it up since January 2023? About, I, I'd have to look it up. Uh, I've got a graph here, but I don't know if I can tell you exactly. What, on an index basis, it was about 170 at the beginning of 2023. It's at 270 at the end of 2023. So 170 to 270, that's a very hefty percentage increase just in one year. Wow. That's the real source of inflation that we aren't feeling yet. Is it forward-looking? So it is pricing in future inflation? Yes, that's exactly what it's doing. It's a measure of how much inflation the markets collectively expect over the next 30 years. Now, folks, just joining us with uh, David Ranson, I had this guy on three years ago, four years ago, he was talking about what inflation would do in 2020 to 2023. People laughed at him and he was like spot on correct. And what ended up happening on the basis of this very strange ratio, what do you call this? It's the ICE Bank of America Long U.S. Treasury Principal Strips Index. And you divide that into the price of gold? ICE stands for Intercontinental Exchange. The price of a zero is the number of future dollars 30 years out or 20 years out you would get for a single dollar today. So you're dividing by today's dollars and you end up with the ratio between gold and future dollars. And that's a much more stable basis for estimating the the danger of inflation. It doesn't fluctuate the way the spot price of gold does. And that is saying, based on last year, there's something like a 58% increase yet to be realized in the inflation rate? Yeah, at least. Yeah, and I remember you saying this three years ago to me, and and it was like, I remember that like 160% increase that it was forecasting. And if you think about it, it kind of came true. Only part of it has come true yet. And we think it's going in the opposite direction, but we are being misled. Energy is pushing it in the opposite direction, but only in the short run. The price of energy is also dictated by the price of gold historically. And that's very easy to prove. Don't they know this? Are they like purposely misleading people or or are they just happy that the price of energy is down? That's a hard question to answer. They're absolutely not lacking in intelligence. They're not lacking in data. They're not lacking in insight, but they're looking in a completely different direction. So they're not seeing any of it, as far as I can Mm. tell. How long have you been tracking this index? It's such a strange formula. You know, how did you come up with this? Yeah, I stumbled on it. It wasn't anything I could construct. I just discovered it. I stumbled over it about five years so I, I'm still trying to look and find this index. Oh, uh, well, the zero is on the internet. Is it Z-R-O-Z? Is that the symbol, Z-R-O-Z? 
No, the symbol in the database we talked about, which originally is Merrill Lynch, it's called ICE. Yeah. The symbol for the 30-year Treasury strip is S030. And there's a a 20-year and a 25-year and so forth, but I'm using the 30 for uh, most of the time. Basically, the only thing holding inflation down, in your opinion, is the energy price being low. And eventually, we're going to wake up, realize the Fed's wrong. And I mean, this actually is kind of a very bearish prediction. So you do not adhere to the disinflation camp that we're going to have this deflationary environment at all? Not at all. People mix up the concept of deflation with depression, but they're not related at all. Deflation is simply a decline in the price level. We'll probably never see that. Disinflation is a reduction in the rate at which the price level declines. And we are seeing, we have been seeing that for the last year. And that's driven by energy prices being so low, as I said. In the longer run, of course, there's a much more consistent tendency to have a positive rate at which prices rise. And in some countries, they can go all the way to hyperinflation, not at all uncommon anymore. And the US is not immune from that process. All you have to do is mismanage your monetary system and you'll get hyperinflation for sure. It doesn't matter if you're US, UK, European, uh, African, and so forth. It doesn't make any difference. It's a matter of the policies you follow. When do you think they wake up and realize they got to raise rates again? These are not people who are likely to wake up. They're absolutely committed to their thinking, their doctrine is the only word to use. It's like religion. I mean, how long did it take the Christianity to wake up from the Middle Ages to the present time? And how many people were killed in the process of quarreling over little bits of doctrine? It takes a very long time for people in an elite control over the economy or over this country to change their minds. The doctrine passes from generation to generation to generation. It's a very, very long process. So you don't believe that well the soft landing then? No, we, we never had to worry about a soft landing because we're not going to have a recession in the first place. And we haven't had a recession I anticipated there wouldn't be a recession because there's been no big shock, and you need a big shock to get a recession. So what we've had is poor growth. We occasionally have a good quarter, but it doesn't mean very much. On the average, our growth rate is only about 1%. In the rest of the world, it's worse. If the collective belief, I I don't share this belief, but if the collective belief is that the Fed sort of has its act together, they're going to do this soft landing, and all of a sudden they got to raise rates to prevent an, a, a further inflation. Then the markets will get spooked next year or the year after. We might have another 20 to 30% drawdown. I, I don't know to what extent the markets really believe what the Fed says. Where individual members of the market believe it, but the markets are really not driven by the opinions of individual people. They're driven by buying and selling decisions and people learning from experience, not necessarily just following what they learned in school. So the markets have a superior kind of intelligence and you never know what they're gonna do. Maybe it seems like prices can't get much higher. 
or that the stock market is headed for bear territory, or maybe you're worried about another great recession. Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback, can help you protect your family's financial future in times like these. Call 888-988-5674 to take advantage of Josh's 27-point plan to achieve financial health. And when you call, you'll receive a free copy of Josh's book, Retirement Reality Check. Call 888-988-5674 to receive your free copy of Retirement Reality Check. Do you have a question, Nick? Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I um, for, First of all, I, I wanted to compliment the doctor on uh, using the strip market as a proxy for inflation expectations and looking at that uh, versus gold. Uh, my question, and so, and, and therefore implying, you know, I, I guess that, you know, inflation's coming back and oil is central to human civilization and it's artificially depressed. And when it goes back up, the inflation rate's going to go go back up. All this makes sense. But what doesn't make sense to me is that the Federal Reserve can ever really allow interest rates to obtain a market level when the debt to GDP is so high and interest on the debt is, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I maybe just top defense and is headed for Social Security and, and, and will un- overtake Medicare as the single largest item in the federal budget. So in that sense, it seems like they have to, you know, pull out the Japanese playbook and have yield curve control and artificially de- depress interest rates. Uh, and this last two years, 18 months is sort of a head fake before they have to capitulate. And c- can you really be Japan when you're the global world reserve currency? So I, I would just like to, and, and uh, all of these sort of variables are beyond my pay grade. I, I don't know how this all plays out, and I'd love to hear how he, he thinks it plays no, I, out. I don't know anything about Japan. I, I, there isn't time to follow so many countries. I have to follow one or two or three. Couldn't answer the question about Japan. In my opinion, there is, it's a myth to think you can control the yield curve. The Fed and other central banks do manage to control short-term interest rates. They were able to push them below zero in Germany and other places. But long-term interest rates, the evidence primarily suggests they had very little effect on those. It's two different worlds. The long-term bond markets are driven by markets. The short-term interest rate is an administrative thing that the central bank can control. Even there, there's a market influence. The markets are dominant throughout the whole thing, and markets recognize the threat of inflation, whether the Fed does or not, and they will price it. They'll price the dollar appropriately. They'll price the euro relative to the dollar according to that as well, and they'll price the future dollar 30 years out according to expectations. It's all driven by markets, not at all by central banks. Well, the um, the example uh, in Japan was where they took their long rates and pegged them at 25 basis points because the, the Japanese debt to, debt to GDP is like 250%, and they just can't afford to pay anything higher than that. And that broke you know, recently, and now it's at 50 basis points. So um, at some point, a country goes bankrupt because the debt service at a market rate absorbs all tax revenue. And, and so that's where, e- even though you know, the yield curve, you know, obviously 
the Fed doesn't control wrong, long rates in the historical paradigm. But this is what uh, the Japanese had to do. They had to, um, you know, expand their, um, uh, you know, their purview and, and control long rates because their, their debt was too high. So, so the concern is that uh, a country like the United States can't really afford a market rate. Listen, I'll step down, and I appreciate uh, uh, you, you, know, you taking the question. There is an important point, an important insight to add to your question or to any answer I might give. Japan and the U.S. are not the same kind of economy. The main thing about the U.S., it's different from every other country in the world, perhaps except Russia. The U.S. government owns about one-third of all the land area. I think it's one-third of all the land area of the United States. It just owns it outright. The amount of wealth vested in that is an enormous asset on the balance sheet of the federal government. So liabilities of the federal government can go much higher in the U.S. than they could in any other country in the world. So the U.S. is not in the same danger of bankruptcy that other countries are when they, their spending gets out of control. It's still a major problem. I'm not minimizing it, but the federal government doesn't have to worry about bankruptcy. If it sold all that land, it would be a wash in, in wealth. So let's go back to your comments on oil. You call for a in uh, one of your latest HCWE, and you can find out more of Dr. Ranson's work on HCWE.com. Talk about oil being 120 a barrel. You think that will be the, the normalization of the oil markets? Just is that based on like the long-term historical average or what? Yes. If you look back 100 years, you find that the ratio between oil and the gold forward 20 years of gold. You could do this with spot gold if you want. It doesn't make any difference. It was the same as it's been in the last two or three years here. Uh, so over 100 years, it varies over time, but it always goes back to what it was before. It's called norm reverting. Some people call it mean reverting. So there's a permanence to the a ratio between oil and gold, which is not going to go away. And that's the basis of figuring that the oil price should not be $72 a barrel right now. If things were normal, if we went back to the normal ratio with gold, it would be at least 120 and maybe 130. Okay, we're going to go to another question from Tina in the audience. Go ahead, Tina. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, David. I, I didn't come in uh, from the beginning. I apologize for that. Do you mind going over what your inflation formula is again? And can I find that on TradingView? Because that's really the only uh, tool I have to uh, try to look at a, a graph of this. I don't have a Bloomberg. Okay, well, let me make this a general comment. Uh, make a note of my email address. Anyone is invited to write to me and ask for anything specific. The graph I would answer this with is one of my graphs. If you look at the cumulative inflation of a lot of countries around the world, especially the ones with the highest inflation rates, which tend to be in the undeveloped world, and plot that set of numbers against the cumulative rise in the price of gold in each country measured in their local currency, you get a straight line, a beautiful straight line and a slope of 45 degrees. 
So that graph is something I would love to make better known because I don't see a lot of economists being aware of it. It's partly because they don't go back far enough into the past to see it. People have too short a time horizon. A lot of my work depends on long time horizons, and there's a lot of insights to be found by looking at, in this case, this would be a 30-year inflation rate and a 30-year gold price change. So I would suggest to you that that's the best way to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that inflation results from the depreciation of the currency relative to a constant standard, the closest to which we can think of any asset would be gold. I only care about the United States. I don't care, like, like you said, I, I'm not worried about all these other countries. Mostly what I'm trading are, are U.S. assets. So I'm not super concerned about what inflation looks like in Argentina or Zimbabwe or lots of other places. So how would I calculate what you're talking about using market uh, indicators like the price of gold? What, would I, what, what indexes would I use to compare one to another? Um, I, I don't care what gold, what 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 inflation does around the world. It's it's a meaningless number to me. It has no no bearing on my making money. I suggest that you can learn a lot from foreign countries, because many foreign countries visited terrain. I, I, I'm sure I'm sure I could learn a lot. That's not what I said. <laughs> I'm not interested in. It's not relevant to your investments. I agree. I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, you can put the U.S. on the same graph. My graph doesn't happen to include the U.S. because I'm looking at inflation rates that are pretty violent in some cases. But the U.S. fits right in, in, in the middle of this straight line, 45-degree plot. So the, how, do I, how do I go about doing it? What I'm saying is I don't care what inflation does in other countries. I'm trading the S&P 500. I'm trading the NDX. I'm trading U.S. bonds. It's irrelevant to me what inflation is doing in Russia or China, or, or any of these other places. I, I don't care about it because I'm not trading those assets. So it means zero to me. I only care about making money in the markets that I'm trading. If you insist, you can ignore all the other countries. Just look at the US. Look at the price of gold in 1800 and the price level for consumers in 1800. Look at it in 2020, say. How many years is that? 220 years you'll find that the percentage increase in both is essentially the same. The price of gold was fixed for many, many, many years. I don't know if it was fixed in 1800, but 1800 is not relevant to me. It's too far back to be meaningful to trading markets. Well, no, let's, let's just look at more recent history. If you look at 2020, and when, when I've had David on every six months, once a year, a couple times a year, it, it's just the ratio, if you're plotting gold, you take the price of gold, you divide that into the ICE 30-year strip number, right? So, you, so today you oh, would take... You don't even need, for this purpose, you don't even need to bother with that. Just use spot gold. and Because over, over time, gold and the adjusted price of gold end up being the same place. Over time, they are the same thing. But in the short run, they're not, which is why I think it's important to make the distinction. But it's so simple. Any time in the past, just take the price of gold in dollars and take the producer price index. That would be the best one to use because consumer price indexes are really screwed up. And look at today's version of the price of gold and the consumer or producer price index and look at the percentage change in both. You'll find no matter which year you choose in the past, 
it's the same ratio. It isn't exactly the same every year, but if you allow for a lag between the price of gold and the producer price index, then you don't need much of a lag. You'll find it's the same. If you use the consumer price index, which nearly everybody insists on using, it's a longer lag, but it's still the same in the end. I guess maybe I guess maybe I'm not clear. I'm trying to actually get the formula that you're using to calculate this so I can replicate it and look at it myself. That's what I'm trying to yeah. Well, I think it's just gold, the price of gold, 2050, right? Or whatever it is, divided by S030 on the ICE exchange, which you have to subscribe to. I don't know. I mean, I, I've always tried to look at this up when we have them on and, it, and it's it's the ICE B of A. I think you got to subscribe to their feed. You, you can get data for free. I get the data for free, but uh, you, you can't get massive amounts for free. You can get small amounts of data. Where do you get free. their data for free? Because every time I you try just to register know. on the website. But just simply, if the price of gold is 2050 today, it's 2050 divided by the ICE Bank of America 30 year strips index, correct? And that will give you a number. Then you basically just plot that number every day and you see a rate of change. And I will tell you just from observing this since I've known David, it has been shockingly prescient of the last, I don't know, five years I've known him. And it's given some forward. I mean, nothing's perfect. No indicator's perfect. It's given some forward-looking data where when, I mean, love Dr. Hunt and all those guys, but a lot of people are predicting disinflation, which we have, we're seeing, then in a year or two, then they're surprised when, you know, prices jumped and stuff like that. So I, I found it to be an interesting indicator. I wish it was, I mean, I, to your point, Tina, I wish, hopefully Dr. Ranson, you can get this, I don't know, published and we can make this like a real indicator that's easy to follow. It's a little bit tricky. I think that's what he's getting at. I've published it to my own clients. I haven't published it in any academic journals. It's uh, too time-consuming, but I will eventually. If I want to go online, am I wrong, though? You take the price of gold today, 2050, divide that by that ratio, right? Where do you get that index, though? I always, when I... If I Google ICE B of A 30-year U.S. Treasury Constant Maturity Strips Index... That's what S030 is. Do you get that from ICE? Who, who gives that to yeah. you? Yeah, they have a website. I can send you the link. Yeah, send me the link, and I'll make it available to people. Who and then you'll, you'll have to register it in order to download data, but uh, that's not hard, and it's free. Merrill, it goes all the way back to Merrill Lynch, and Merrill Lynch created that database, and it was free then, and I've been using it ever since. It just seems to be uh, tricky to find it sometimes. Would it be on the FRED website or no? There's something I need to make clear because we're, we're talking about two different topics at the same time. One topic is the formula that I use to get the forward price of gold from the spot price of gold. The other topic has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the long-term proportionality between the price level or the inflation rate and the price of gold or the rate at which the price of gold goes up. And for that, you can use the spot gold price. It won't make much difference to the result. You're going to get a 45-degree straight line relationship across the entire world and within the United States historically as well. I care about what's going to happen a year from now, two years from now, but I find it pretty alarming that you said there was a, 
you know, 50% change in this ratio last year that really hasn't shown up in the inflation numbers yet. And I remember you kind of saying this three years ago, and then it happened and it's kind of alarming. Well, the, the good side of the whole story is that the combined collective private sectors of the economy are far more powerful than we give them credit for. And the markets, where markets are efficient, are permitted to operate, they are far more powerful in dictating the future of, of a country like the United States than any bunch of Washingtonians would be. To go back to this ICE B of A thing, what is that number today? Well, as I say, it's a six-digit number. I can't. Oh, okay. I don't, okay. And you just you just plot it daily, day. and then you yeah. see a rate of change. Okay. Yeah. yeah send me an email on how to get that. I, I've always. Found yeah, I'll send you the link and I can send you several data points so you can double check, you can download them. And just to clarify this, you take the current price of gold and you divide that by that number. Yeah. And that gives you a number and then you just plot it once a day. You do it daily, yeah, so weekly? Yes, I plot it twice a month. Uh, okay. And even that's more than enough. But it shows this 160% increase. And that rate gives an implied future inflation increase that has yet to show up in the economy. Uh, some of it has shown up. That's why okay. we've had the inflation surge. But an awful lot of it is yet to show. So if it was a 58% increase, just what hasn't shown up yet? Well, the big part of what has not shown up yet is the way the oil price has pulled away from it, dragging a lot of commodity prices along with it. So as long as oil is abnormally priced, which it will be as long as we have wars breaking out all over the world, then oil will be depressed in price until we have a really uh, hot war, then it'll go up. What, what if the government, I mean, obviously they, they have some access to this data. What if they know this and they're just saying hey, that's why we're flooding the oil markets to keep supply high so prices go down, like some manipulation. So, so for example theory that the Biden administration made the reserves more plentiful, more available, things like that? You don't really look into that? I don't look into that. I, I, it, there's no question that government officials are manipulating everything they can get their hands on all the time. But I don't think it makes a heck of a lot of difference. Markets are huge, deep, uh, intelligent, far-sighted, and will outwit the government every step. And the market's estimate is the one I would go by. What else is uh, keeping up in it? What are you researching lately other than <laughs> oil and your uh, ratio? Well, I'm getting into commodities generally. I think this, the same things I've been saying about oil are also true about other commodities, which are much less important than oil. But it makes it interesting if you can develop a way of anticipating what's going to happen to commodity prices. That's a useful for investment strategy purposes. So that interests me as well. I would like to develop some kind of general theory of commodity pricing along these lines. And it won't depend on what the people are doing running the Strategic Petroleum Reserve or the Saudis or the Russians or the Chinese or anybody else. It doesn't matter what individuals do. It's only a matter of what the market is doing. And folks, if you're just joining us, I'm Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. Be sure to follow me. Uh, so we can bring in economists. Last week, we had Lacey Hunt. This week, we have David Ranson and others. So that way, you'll be notified when I bring these insightful guests on. If anybody has a question for Dr. Ranson, you can raise your hand. I'd love to bring you up. What opportunities do you like right now in the investing landscape? Well, the most interesting thing I do is to look overseas. And this is very counterintuitive. 
I look for the countries whose currencies have depreciated the most. Currently, that might be Argentina, might be historically would have often been Brazil, Turkey, Chile, and other countries from time to time. And this goes all the way back to the 1920s when the French started the whole ball rolling after the First World War. I look at these countries and I find that none of them can tolerate the hyperinflation that results. Politically, whoever was in charge during the huge currency depreciations that have occurred has been thrown out of office and placed by somebody who looked like they might know something. And frequently, the new regime that came in didn't know anything, and the inflation just carried on. But once in a while, they did know something, and they stopped the inflation one way or another. As most notoriously, the Germans stopped inflation in 1923 with the help of a loan from the United States. The thing is, if you anticipate there will be a reliable uh, political revolt against hyperinflation in any country, then you should buy the equities of that country. It's called buying the dogs. They are the worst performing equity markets, but once the currency is stabilized, they turn around and zoom back up. I'm hoping this is going to happen in Argentina. It, it may have begun, but there's an awful lot of other things going on in Argentina right now, and they haven't dollarized yet. But if they do dollarize, that'll happen to Argentina if this present president is lucky enough to survive the opposition, which is intense. So for those who are not familiar with Argentina, what's going on, and you write in the International Forecaster, tying the domestic currency to or replacing it with a more stable external standard is a prescription that many other countries will eventually follow. They are the latest country in successful political rebellion against high inflation. Talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, people, I think, in the news media at least, and a lot of economists minimize inflation as really not that big a problem. It's the general public rising in revolt against it that convinces some economists that it must be more of a problem than they realized. The way to see how big a problem inflation is, one way, a very interesting way, I've just written about this, is to look at the stock market measured over 10-year periods. The 10-year performance of the equity market, I've got the data back to the 1920s, I guess. Could go much further back if I take the time. So we've got about, uh, I think it's nine decades in which we can measure the stock market's performance and the growth rate of the economy during that decade as well and compare them, hardly any connection. That goes against most people's intuition. There is a connection, but it's not what you think. Then you plot a graph of the 10-year stock market performance against the 10-year inflation rate. It's like an explosion, a huge correlation, especially if you replace the inflation rate with the change in the price of gold, then you get the most unbelievably close relationship. If you wanted to explain 10-year stock market performance, which goes up and down like a yo-yo, it's not at all a safe asset, then the price of gold explains it to something like a 75% extent. So that's uh, one of the things I've been doing recently, looking at 10-year horizons. It bears on this view in the United States that stocks are the asset to hold for the long haul. 
I don't believe this at all. 10 years stock market performance in 10 years is a pretty long time, can be 20% per annum for 10 years, or it can be negative per annum for 10 years. It all depends on which 10 years you pick. That's not an asset you want to hold for the long haul and forget about. There is no asset that you can hold for the long haul, perhaps except gold. Uh, there are hardly any other assets at all. And the stock market is just like all the others. Have you looked at any other countries besides Argentina who are trying to uh, have a political rebellion against inflation? For example, you know, El Salvador with embracing Bitcoin as a more fixed external standard? Well, there isn't time. I haven't looked at a lot of other countries until relatively recently. The best example you might not think of is Russia. Russia had a, a virtually a hyperinflation coming out of the invasion of Ukraine. And the Russian inflation rate was pretty high before the Ukraine crisis occurred. And uh, somebody persuaded, must have been Putin, must have persuaded Putin that they could tie the ruble to gold. Essentially, it's like Argentina dollarizing, Russia goldized it. And they did. It's not clear how they did it, but they did keep the exchange rate between the ruble and gold within a narrow band, and they kept it going for about four months. And during that four-month period, inflation went to zero. Hmm. And then something broke. The Russian Central Bank was still there. They must have pushed the advisors who recommended this strategy out, and they went back to their policy, let the ruble float, and it floated down and down and down, and now we're back to hyperinflation again. Hmm. Parting thoughts, things that you didn't share with our audience that you would like to. That's hard to think of and without any preparation, but my biggest thought is that, as I said before, markets give us tremendous amounts of information that we're not paying sufficient attention to. And government officials are giving us lots and lots of information to which we're paying far too much attention. That would be my parting thought. And you can find out more of Dr. Ranson's work at hcwe.com. My parting question, does it pay to buy bonds after dips? Uh, I found the answer to be no. It may sometimes. There was a big dip in the bond market, as you know, about six months ago, I think it was. And it has come back. But I was studying it before it came back. I looked at all the historical bond market dips, and I found that unlike the stock market, the biggest dips were not followed by the biggest rebounds, and the smallest dips were not followed by the smallest rebounds. There was no proportionality between the dips and the rebounds. Whereas in the stock market, there's a very strong relationship between the severity of the so-called dips, which are really sell-offs, and the rebounds that follow them, which reflect the restoration of confidence. It does not work for bonds, but it does work for stocks, and it does work for quite a few other assets. Uh, it works for the oil market, and uh, it works for other commodities, and that is something that I'm working on currently. David Ranson, hcwe.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ranson. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, make sure you follow me for more. Have a great day. You too. Thank you.